turn in your Bibles this morning to the second letter to the Corinthians. We'll be reading two, um, or three verses rather, from the very end of that letter in chapter 13, verses 11 through 13. The letters to the Corinthians are a collection of writings and correspondence that the Apostle Paul sent uh, to a church that he had been deeply involved in establishing and maintaining, and even in his absence, they reached out to him for counsel, uh, for support, and in many ways, the the letters reflect uh, what is good news to me when I wonder if we have learned anything over the last two millennia of being the church that uh, churches, because they are dwelt and inhabited by humans, will continue to struggle to discern what is right and what is good. And the Apostle Paul uh, offers counsel and encouragement, often in the same verses, in the same breath. And as he concludes this last bit of the letter, uh, he does so with some stern warnings, admonitions, and counsel, and finally with a blessing. Hear these words. Finally, brothers and sisters, farewell. Put things in order. Listen to my appeal. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. May God bless the reading and the hearing of the word today. As we come to this scripture, we do so through the lens of what was in the hymnal I grew up with, hymn number one, holy, holy, holy. And now it's been bumped to something like 68 in the current Baptist hymnal. Um, and I'll live with it. I can still find it, but I loved having it as number one. It was in a church that, like most churches, tended to disagree over what was the best sort of music or the most enduring music and the most impactful music. Everyone seemed to be able to agree on holy, holy, holy. There's something about its structure, the way it is built, both musically and lyrically, to draw us into lockstep, not just with one another, but with God. And with the steady pulse of that hymn, we are drawn into what is actually something of a rare experience in our lives in church, which is to pause long enough simply to adore God for who God is. And not immediately go to asking what does God want us to do or celebrate what God has done for us but instead to resonate both with the Old Testament prophet Isaiah and the New Testament prophet John in the, in the revelation to John, ascribe to God this powerful word, holy, holy, holy. This hymn, Holy, 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 was written uh, in the early 19th century by Reginald Heber, And Heber was a very clever student and excelled, got great marks. 
and even as he made his way through his ordination and ministry in the Anglican Church, uh, chose a very small and humble parish. He could have, in many ways, written his own ticket, been in some sort of large steeple parish somewhere, but instead chose to remain in something of a more rural and humble setting. He was good at many things, and he had a reputation both for his devotion and as a very gifted poet. He wrote poems, ultimately, that became hymns. Now, something you should know about the Anglican church in the early 19th century is that they discouraged singing any hymns, except for the, the, the psalms that would be sung or chanted or recited in worship. Otherwise, it was spoken ritual word back and forth. And so while it may not come across to us as something of an edgy or innovative or boundary-pushing sort of song, the works of people like Isaac Watts and Reginald Heber represented a pushback against the establishment. And then as now, uh, you know, there were people who would cross both arms and just sort of wait for that newfangled song to be over so we could get back to real worship and chant the Psalter together. Some things truly never change. All of us, when we are pushed beyond what we were formed in, sometimes resist what God might be inviting us to. And I don't know what we're, oh, somebody's, somebody's, uh, uh, I wasn't sure what we were being invited to, somebody's uh, phone. But as we, uh, as we hear these words, hear that they both speak of a timeless, uh, a timeless traditional doctrine of who God is, and they also represent an innovative way of reaching into the minds and into the hearts of worshipers and of Christians. We need that sort of innovation throughout our lives. None of us can stagnate just where we are. But sometimes, instead of just dreaming up a new dream about who God is, sometimes the greatest inspiration comes from that remembering of what we have been taught, maybe presented in a way that we can hear with our modern spirits, with all of the new questions that inevitably arise. Paul, as he concludes his correspondence with the Corinthians, concluded with the words that I just read to you today. And as he concludes this letter, he does so calling them not only with this benediction to a place of comfort. This was probably the earliest benediction I memorized. With the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forever. I, almost without fail at funerals, and at other important occasions, I want to remind folks about the context in which we live and move. And that in and of itself is an important thing. But I don't want us to forget that that comforting blessing is also attached to a challenge. Just before that assurance of God's ongoing presence as the triune God in our midst, we hear these words, put things in order listen to my appeal, agree with one another, and live in peace. And that blessing extends us those things that are very short in supply sometimes. We live in isolation. 
We live in a society that cannot quit its addiction to violence. We live in a context in which people can be sort of triggered and propelled to outrage so fast, conflict and division. And we hear these words again, put things in order. Be about the work of mending and restoring and completing. Listen to my appeal. That is, be comforted by it, and then be a comfort to others. Agree with one another. Can you overcome your self-interest and align yourself in relationships that move beyond your own self-interest? And live in peace, he says. Seek that deep satisfaction that rests in what the scriptures call God's shalom to trust God's provision, to trust God's presence, and that even though we have all we need, there is still enough for all. Live that way. King James Version captures it really succinctly. It's very snappy. Be perfect. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. You can put that in your pocket as a little mission statement for the week, for your own life, for your family's life, and for our church. But whatever translation you choose, I also want to recognize that this is a very tall order for any of us. It is hard because it represents a stark alternative to what it is we see in the world. To be perfect, that is complete. To be of comfort, to be of one mind, and to live in peace is no small thing. And when we were raised in school, we learned a pledge of allegiance to be one nation under God. In some ways, this is our pledge to be one church under God. And when the church can live faithfully like this, we might be able to show our nation, we might be able to show a watching world what it means to live under God at all. And with this bold challenge comes a bold assurance that the blessing of the God of peace will be with us as we move into the world toward restoration and reconciliation and sacred Sabbath rest for ourselves and for our neighbor. Next we hear about a holy kiss and flu season is almost upon us. COVID uh, COVID rates are on the rise. So we might need to put that off until another time, but maybe we can adopt the practice of blowing a holy kiss. Looking at you, Kim Shaw. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Looking at you, Sean Fenton. And we can continue. But the God of peace will be in our work. That's the thought I want us to hang on to. The God of peace will be with us. That's what I need us to remember as a church. And it asks a question. I think it's a question we often blow past a little too quickly sometimes as Christians. When we gather as church, What do we mean when we say God at all? And you might say, yes, well, we talk about God all the time. But like I said, we do talk a lot about what God wants of us. And sometimes when we're quiet and and still enough, we can start to think about and talk about those things God has done for us. And we share the gospel with one another. We can share that gospel with the world 
but we don't talk very much about who God is. And I think this is really difficult because when we start doing that, we have to speak about it in a way that God has shown us. And it is exactly at that point that we start to run aground. Because what God has shown us is found in the very last verse of this letter. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. This is the identity of the God of peace with whom all that holy work that we've been challenged to do is done. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God. I'm talking now about the Trinity, of course. And when we try to define the Trinity, you end up with all sorts of confusion. It's a nonsense sort of math, isn't it? Where one plus one plus one equals one. You try to draw the Trinity and you end up with this, it's almost like you run out of dimensions in which to capture something. It's a weird Venn diagram at the end of the day where you try to show that Jesus is God, the Father is God, the Spirit is God, but Jesus is not the Father, and the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and so forth. And so while I don't want to belabor that too much, I invite you instead to step out of your heads, at least the part of your heads that's trying to see. You know, sometimes the most important things in our lives are revealed to us when we close our eyes. Things come clearer when we do that. And at Duke Divinity School, there's a scholar named Jeremy Begbie, uh, who a couple of years ago, in a book he wrote, taught me a very important lesson about how to expand my own imagination about the triune God. Because after all, our eyes teach us certain things about the space in which we live and move. And it's super helpful. Um, and I'm going to stop long enough to say, you who are operating the cameras, don't worry. I'm going to move about the chancel that is intentional, and you don't need to move the cameras. I'm just going to move back here. But it's important for me to be able to visualize the space, because otherwise I would run into things and fall over. I and this music stand cannot occupy the same space at the same time. And so my visual acuity matters. But that's not the only sense we have, and that's not the only way our imagination is fired. So I invite you to close your eyes just for a minute and open your ears. Imagine yourself like me uh, in front of a piano and you strike one note. That one note, it takes up all the space of this room, of your mind, of your heart, all of ourselves are just subject to the work of that one note. Now, add another note. That note fills the same space. You hear it as distinct. There are undeniably two notes. But in the world that we hear, things can be in and through each other. 
they can interpenetrate. And so think about Jesus' words again from John 14, 11, when he says, Believe me when I say I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe the evidence of the works themselves. You might not be able to draw a picture of what Jesus is saying, but you might be able to hear it. Now add another note. And you have a three-note chord. And those three distinct notes, they fill all of the herd space together. And they are unified. And deep down in your soul, all three fill all the space that you hear. But you never lose the capacity to discern the individual personality of those notes either. And I want you to notice too that the importance of each individual note is not diminished when you add another one. If anything, the uniqueness of each note is enhanced by the relationship that it has in the presence of other notes. And so these notes work together. They dwell in one another. They resonate with one another. They enhance each other. And there are so many ways that that interrelationship between the notes can move with joy, or they can move with sadness, or they can move in tension, all the way to resolution. You can open your eyes. Now consider that point of view again, how the Trinitarian life of God is something of a love song. Three equal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each dwelling in the other, enhancing the other by virtue of an unceasing song of mutual love. They never lose their individual personality, and they move in unity of will and of mutual communion. So I hope you'll agree with me that the work that Ted and Mary Martha and Keith and Mackenzie and the orchestra and the choir and the bells and, yes, the coffeehouse musicians on Friday night and all of the spaces in between teach us more than just the text they transmit. They open our spiritual imaginations to begin to comprehend the deep mysteries of our faith. But we have to access all that God has given us in our bodies, in our lives, and in this community to be able to embrace all God might want to give us. And so I'm going to ask that question again. Who is this God of peace? who is with us. Because it seems that if we know who God is, we can really embrace how God does in the world. God is an eternal relationship. God is an everlasting, perfect communion. If you read in Acts chapter 17, you hear how the Apostle Paul made his way to Athens. And as 
he does his ministry in Athens, he just walks around. And there, in the pantheon of Greco-Roman gods, where every corner and every side street seem to have an idol or an altar to a different god, he discovers one that seems to be sort of the catch-all altar. It says, to the unknown god. Just in case we missed a god somewhere out there in the world, we're just going to do one more altar that sort of catches up and makes sure we don't, uh, in some way, anger a god we forgot to name. Uh, I, I, I think I've told you before, I had a, uh, a student that I worked with when I was doing prison ministry, uh, and he was in the juvenile system, and he told me, you know, I pray every night that God would forgive me for everything I've done today. I said, that's right, and that is good. Uh, he said, and then I pray that God's going to forgive me for what I'm going to do tomorrow. <laughs> and in the same way, I said, well, it doesn't, it doesn't quite work that way um, in terms of, of, of trying to change things. He just wanted to catch all, just in case. To the unknown God, in the same way, is an effort to express devotion to that which we don't know or don't yet know or can't know. And so Paul uses this as a platform on which to begin his preaching to the Athenians. And instead of coming out with kind of both guns blazing with holy talk, he points to what they already know and where their heads and hearts already are. And he said, basically, there's this altar that says to the unknown God, I'm here to tell you now who that God is. And then, as he continues, he, he quotes philosophers, including the philosopher Epimenides. And he says, this is the God in whom we live and move and have our being. Eventually moving them to a place where he can describe the revelation that this God has made in flesh and in blood and in history and in Jesus Christ. But personally, I've always stuck and held on to that phrase, the God in whom we live and move and have our being as Christians, as a church. To be one church under God is to trust that God's life is our life. And it's our life to live out here and now. That is the promise of following Jesus, that God's own life is made our life through him. And so to sign on to being a part of that life and to set down our own self-determination is a very risky thing. To live a Trinitarian faith means to love and to be vulnerable, to be open to another, to be self-giving, to share and to participate in other people's lives in order to lift everyone up. That is how Jesus lived. That is how he died. That is what the resurrected and ascended and Pentecostal faith that he offers us is all about. And the world does not recognize that kind of love as being particularly noble. It does not reward that kind of life at all because to the world it looks like weakness. And to the world, that kind of life looks like an over-dependency. But in God's world, it is holiness. Whenever we see the world through someone else's eyes and whenever we see the joys and sorrows of another become something that we can be a part of 
a healing and restorative part. And whenever we give ourselves completely to another without holding back, or whenever we open ourselves up to receive someone unconditionally, whenever we both lose our life and we find it in a life together in Christ, those are the times when we are most like God. And then we've moved from being creatures made in the image or the pattern of God, and we've become those who live into that image. The image of the triune God. And I wouldn't presume to understand it exactly. But we can know it. And we can be a part of it. And we can show a watching nation and neighborhood. We can show a watching world who God is by living how God does. So brothers and sisters, farewell. Put things in order. Listen to my appeal. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Looking at you, Judy, buddy. All the saints greet you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. As we continue in this time service, I invite you to enter back into that hearing space where your spirits are tuned to how God's Spirit may be speaking to you now. As Mary Martha leads us, it's an invitation to open our hands and express our generosity and give our offerings and to offer ourselves to God in whatever way God is calling out of us. If that requires a decision where you need the church's support to begin following Jesus and to trust the life in God's great life that he offers to any who trust him, then we are here to receive you, celebrate, and grow that relationship. If today is the day for you to take a step forward and become a part of the membership of this church, the fellowship, the ministry, then I welcome you. If there's a special calling in your life and you need this congregation's help to fulfill, whatever it may be, and you need to make that known today, as we sing our concluding hymn, I'll be in the front, and I'll gratefully receive you, gladly present you, and we will welcome you fully and finally into the fellowship called Yates Baptist Church. Let us now respond.